if you would, uh, take out your Bibles. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We will be reading verses 1 through 18, although our focus today will be on verses 6 through 18. So, we'll start reading in verse 1 through verse 18. John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this reading of your word. We pray, O God, that you now would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. We pray that your word would impact our hearts. That we would hear, that we would see, and that we would believe. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to know Christ deeply, to worship Him, to glorify Him. Thank you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John's Gospel begins, as we had uh, seen last time, in in the very beginning. Speaking, and he speaks in terms such as the Word, life, light, and darkness. 
John begins with the word who was with God and was God. He speaks of the word that was with God and is God before creation, that the word is God, and this highlights Christ's eternal existence and his creative work. This echoes, to some extent, the opening chapters of Genesis. The divine Logos made the world and then, through the course of time, took onto himself flesh, coming into this world in order to save sinners such as you and me. John doesn't waste any time getting to the point that the promised Christ was God and man. So we see immediately the the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is highlighted throughout John's narrative. Jesus came to bring spiritual light and life into dark and dead places in this creation, namely in the hearts of men. In coming, Jesus Christ brought light to a world which lacked light. For darkness really is the lack of light. At creation, you might remember this was the case. In the cosmos, God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 And then he declared, let there be light. And there was light. Jesus came into the world and he brings spiritual light into spiritually dark hearts. He brings life to those who would otherwise be spiritually dead. This life we receive by faith in Him. In other words, it is received not by our doing. It's not because we worked really hard. It is by believing that salvation is a free gift of God in Christ Jesus. And so John wants us to know that this promised one, the one who had been promised throughout the Old Testament, all of those covenant promises have come to fruition and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now, even as the writer introduces his theme, though there are others that he wants to introduce us to as well. And he tells us of John. Now, we can presume that he's speaking here of John the Baptist. The one who had come as a forerunner. The one who had come to bear witness to Christ. And so the writer John continues in this prologue. And he introduces to us John the Baptist starting in verse 6. The one, uh, one who bore witness to the light. So the light has come and this is the one who was bearing witness, pointing to the light. Now... At first, this may seem a bit odd to us. After all, the the focus of this gospel is on Jesus Christ. So why is there this aside dealing with John, who bears witness to the light? Well, the author has already begun with the beginning, helping us to understand Jesus Christ as the pre-incarnate divine word who was God Now, John, the writer, wants to shift the focus 
to the incarnated public ministry of Jesus Christ as Jesus enters into the scene of history as a man preaching the kingdom of God. The first and perhaps most prominent eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ is John the Baptist. John was sent by God to be a witness of the light so that others would believe. The Baptist was not himself the light. This is made very clear in the text. John himself makes this very clear. His purpose was to speak about the light, to tell of the light, to point the world to light and life in Jesus. Thus his declaration about Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 29. We'll look at this in the future. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the light. He's the one who's the Lamb of God. John's ministry, John the Baptist rather, his ministry was that of Isaiah 40. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the uneven ground shall be made level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." God was speaking in this world. And John was the voice crying, Make make way for the one who would come. John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance. A message testifying that Yahweh has come in the flesh. God has taken on flesh. And so he he came, that is, John the Baptist came as a witness to the one who was the light in the world. The Savior has come. He has come to point to Jesus Christ. This was his purpose. This was the reason that John the Baptist's ministry existed, was to point to Christ. John was sent by God to point to the true light. He himself was not the light. Now, this point, that John was not the light, but came to point to the light, this ought to be very instructive for us as Christians, shouldn't it? As Christians, we too have been called to bear witness to the light, and we must remember, we are not the light. We are not the light. Christ is. We are not the ultimate solution to people's problems. Another way of saying it is this, beloved congregation, you, you are not the Savior. We have not come to rescue sinners as individuals. Jesus came to rescue sinners. You and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, reflect the light of Christ. We reflect the light of Christ like the moon reflects the light of the sun. You and I point to the spiritual realities which are manifested in the Messiah. Sometimes as Christians we 
we, we have a, maybe, maybe you could say a Messiah complex. We, we want to solve everybody's problems ourselves. We, we want to be their Savior. We are not their Savior. You know, this really relates to what we've been talking about in mercy ministry during Sunday school. We want to help people. That's good. But we must remember that our, our role is, like John the Baptist, we're pointing to who ultimately is their help. And that's Jesus. And so John came to bear witness to the light. The true light, it says here in our text, which gives light to everyone. So that light, the writer says, was coming in the world. In other words, the eternal word, this is the light, that is to say the Lord Jesus Christ, the light, the word, has come into creation. He is the true light bringing illumination upon all. John, the Baptist, was a mere reflection of the light. He was bearing witness to the light. You and I, as followers of Christ, reflect that light as well. The true light has come, and the gospel says he gives light to everyone. Now, what does this mean in verse 9? That he gives light to everyone. Does this mean that everyone will come to a knowledge of the truth? How is the light given to everyone? Well, first of all, the phrase, gives light, has the primary lexical meaning of to shed light or to make visible. So the light shines on every man, which in turn divides the human race, in a sense. There are those who hate the light, as, and they love the darkness, and so they flee from the light. There are those who, as the light shines upon them, respond in the way we'd expect the world to do so. They flee lest their wicked deeds be exposed and be brought out into the open. But there are others who receive this revelation and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through the living God. This is the case with John the Baptist and all those who are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The light is shining on every man, upon every Jew and Gentile alike. Whether he sees it or not, the light has come to shine. The truth has come into the world. The truth is being proclaimed to the world, the whole world. It is shining, it is, it is being brought to, ba- to bear upon all of creation. And so some flee from that light. And, and we experience that, don't we? As you, as you share the gospel and you have people who say, Well, I don't want anything to do with that. They flee from it. They think you're silly. Because they love darkness. But for others, that light, as, as the gospel is proclaimed, they have life. That's many of you, isn't it? As the light has come, life, spiritual life has come. And so with this light of Christ, this is being carried to the far reaches of our planet, even into our own day. This is the work of missions. We bring the light of the gospel to bear on all peoples and tribes and nations and languages. And in those dark places, as the light begins to shine, as the light comes, there are always those who flee from the light. Perhaps even seek to destroy the light. But then there are those who receive 
the light of the gospel with great joy and they rest in Christ, their Savior. All of humanity is to hear of the Messiah, the Savior who has come. This is why the gospel must be preached to the far reaches of our world. And this is why we do the work of missions. And this continues into our own day. The light of the gospel has come to be shown upon all of creation. And the point is Christ, Christ who is the light, He has come into the world and is present now through His Word and Spirit, shining into dark places in the world, some coming to believe, others hating and fleeing. But the Creator has come into His own creation and we see that even some... His own did not know Him. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And so here is the Creator God who has taken on flesh. He has come into His creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the world did not know Him. The world which was created by the Lord did not recognize Him as their Lord and God. They did not know Him. They did not believe. The world and those of the world are committed to their own autonomy. They want to be their own God. They want to be a law unto themselves. They desire to be the Lord of their own life. Mankind is alienated from God because of sin. And sin, we know, entered into the world because of Adam when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is cosmic treason. This is a rebellion against the Creator. And this has separated mankind from their God. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the Gentile unbelievers in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, says of them this, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. This is the life of all of humanity apart from knowing God. And when Jesus came into the world, the world, that is, humanity, did not acknowledge Him for who He is. Jesus had come to His own covenant people. A people that had been set apart by God, who had been given the law, had been given the prophets. They had the Word. It was not only the world which did not recognize their Savior, but His own people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been specially set apart. The Jewish nation. The nation from which the promise of salvation had come. The nation who had been given the law and the prophets, wisdom, the mighty deeds of deliverance as they experienced the exodus of Egypt had experienced the salvation out of Babylon, the people who had come under God's judgment, the people of God who had come under His mercy, that ethnic people, the people who were blessed and given the covenant promises, Jesus came to His people and they did not receive Him. In fact, they rejected Him. 
Again and again under the Old Covenant, the prophets describe an obstinate and rebellious, the rebellious nature of the people of God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 65. It says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. What a great people! The people of God are described throughout as stiff-necked, rebellious, and more wicked than their forefathers. What a great testimony, isn't it? These are the people that were God's own, who He had come to, and who, no surprise here, reject Him. There is hope. By themselves, verses 10 and 11 would be very grim. It's almost like, Ooh, well, wait, you mean to tell me that, that God has set apart a special people and He came to them and they said, no thank you. Well, some of them did, but not all. By themselves, verses 10 and 11 is very grim. They speak of a Savior who's rejected by men. And by the way, this would be the default of all men because all are dead in their sins and trespasses. But there is hope for those whom God has called, verse 12, for all who did receive Him. Oh, this is glorious, isn't it? For all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Isn't this marvelous? Those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior, these are the same as those who believe in His name. To those... Who he has given to those, he has given them the, the right to be the children of God. They've been adopted into the family. By faith, you and I inherit the joy of adoption. Those who have faith enjoy the privilege of being the covenant people of God. A people who have been set apart for God's special purposes. Listen to Romans 8, 16-17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then Paul adds this, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We've been set apart as adopted children, but Paul points out we will suffer too. Those who trust and rest upon Jesus Christ for their salvation, who believe on His name. The Son of God has bestowed the privilege privilege of being a child of God. You're trusting in Christ. You belong to Jesus. You are a child of God. You are a blood-bought child of the King of Kings. This new birth didn't come about John tells us, through flesh and blood. It was not by the will of man, but of God. Faith, we are joyfully reminded, is a free gift from God. And that faith which causes us to be born again into a new life was not by our will. It was not by the will of men. 
That is to say, our decision is not what saves us, but it is of God because it is God who is doing the saving. We are saved by God. Christ Himself is the ground of our salvation, and the faith is the alone instrument. We are merely the recipients of this free gift of salvation in Christ. We receive with empty hands and express that faith with great joy as those who have been bought with a price. You and I become children not in the ordinary sense, that is to say, through being born to a mother and father, but we are born again by the Spirit. This introduces us to a concept which John brings up later, of being born again. Those who are in Christ have been born again to a new life in Christ and are by adoption made children and heirs of promise. And so spiritual birth is not a matter of the will of the flesh. It is not a matter of human decision, but of God. Spiritual birth is nothing other than the very act, a miraculous act of a loving God. John the Evangelist, finally in verse 14, then speaks of the glory of the incarnate Word. You see, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The divine and eternal Word, who created and sustains the world, who is all-glorious, clothed in majesty and splendor, was born humbly into this creation as God took on flesh. God was humiliated, as it were. Literally, we see, He dwelt among us. He pitched His tabernacle among us. Now this brings to mind, perhaps... The tabernacle erected in the Old Testament. We read, that about, read about it in our Old Testament reading. The, the tabernacle which was by God's design and at His command, which was pitched in the tent or pitched in the camp of Israel, where God would meet with His people, the tent of meeting. God dwelt with His people in that tent of meeting, moving from locale to locale in the wilderness before the final settlement in the land of promise. But now, the tent by which God dwells in with men is not of leather and fabric, but of human flesh. The flesh of Jesus was to be the new localization of God's presence on earth. In a real sense, Jesus is the replacement of the ancient tabernacle. His body was the location of the divine presence. In the Incarnation, the Word took on flesh, being born. Now to be clear, as John has already stated, it is not that Jesus came into existence. We we already know that He has existed from all eternity. The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God among men. Jesus was born of a virgin in a humble estate and lived with and among His people. He pitched His tent with us. In verse 14, the people of God have seen His glory. We have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father. In the sight of the glory 
is yet another Old Testament illusion, which brings to mind the, the bright cloud of the presence of God which settled upon the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The glory of the Lord which filled the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord came to His people in His tent. The Apostle John says this about it. We have seen His glory. We've experienced God. We might say, but, but who is the we? When John says we have seen His glory, glory is the only Son. Who, who is the we? Well, certainly the apostles, the disciples, or all, all of the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and His ministry, all of them beheld His glory. God coming in the flesh. The term which is translated seen, or in some, some, of our, some of your translations, beheld, has the idea of watching as in a theater. The disciples were witnesses to a divine drama, as it were, seeing, contemplating it. The eyewitnesses of Jesus, the Son of God, they viewed His life. They watched, they wondered. They considered. They, they, they saw the miracles of Jesus. They heard His teaching. They witnessed His death. They were amazed at the resurrection. They saw Him ascend to the Father. The disciples of Jesus Christ beheld His glory. We have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. But beloved congregation, you and I have also beheld His glory, haven't we? We're not direct eyewitnesses. We haven't seen Jesus, as it were, with our physical eyes. We, but we have seen His glory as we have believed and have rested on Him by faith. We have the eyes of faith and have gazed upon Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected from, for us. We have trusted in His completed work for us. We have seen His glory. We have seen the glory of Christ. In fact, isn't this a point that Paul makes in Galatians? When he tells them, was it not with your own eyes that you've seen Christ crucified? And Galatians weren't in Jerusalem. They were pagans. They weren't, even, they weren't even Jews. And yet they've seen the glory because they heard the gospel and believed. Beloved, we have seen His glory. And this glory, John, the writer John says, is, is, of, is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's natural that the only begotten of the Father would exhibit such tremendous glory full of grace and truth because God is full of grace and truth. He is gracious and God is by definition true. John is bearing witness to the fullness of the glory of the Son. But this glory was not revealed to all, but only to those who believe, having the scales of their eyes removed, perceiving Christ with their eyes of faith. 
Only those to whom God has chosen to reveal Himself can comprehend, even in part, the glory of God. This becomes more and more clear throughout a reading of the Gospel of John as the display of the glory of Christ is not perceived by everyone. When Jesus performs a miracle which acted as a sign pointing to heavenly realities, He he reveals something of His glory, but not everyone received it. Some even rejected it. Not everyone understood the significance of these signs. And some even wanted to kill Him for it. Wait, you you, uh, healed someone on the Sabbath. We better kill you for this. You're a blasphemer. But only His disciples. They saw His glory as they placed their faith in Him. The miracles of Christ, in and of themselves, did not unmask the glory of Christ, but the eyes of faith had to be opened to see the glory. The glory which was revealed in those signs. And so there was, in a sense, a a sense of hiddenness in the display of the glory of the incarnate Word. Nonetheless, those who were given the gift of faith saw the glory of God, which is full of grace. And truth, God's grace being poured out on His people. Now, as we look at our text, you might note that verse 16 would follow up very nicely after verse 14. But, but in between, we have verse 15, and John provides something of a parenthetical remark. And, and this was designed to prepare the reader for the account of John the Baptist and his witness of Christ. The Baptist declared boldly that the one that he was the one who was a forerunner to, but this one he was a forerunner to was greater than himself. John did not come before Christ, even as he was active in his in his public ministry before Jesus comes on the scene, and yet he's his precursor. He did not come before Christ because Christ eternally predates him. And so before Jesus had, become, had begun his public ministry, uh, before John the Baptist even knew who it was who would come, he was announcing in general terms the coming of this promised Messiah, the one who had been long awaited for and should have been greatly anticipated. John again acknowledges that he is not the light. That he was less than Christ. And so as, John, as, as verse 14 describes the glory of the Son, the incarnate Word which manifests the glory of God, verse 16 speaks of the grace which we receive. For from His fullness, it says, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, this text and the translation of it and, and, and the interpretation of it is, is complex. And the, me, the meaning of it really must rest upon the explanation which is given in verse 17. The believer has an abundance of grace, grace upon grace. But what does this mean? Now there are, there are some disagreements among scholars as to the meaning of the phrase grace upon grace. The, the Greek is karin anti karatos. And the phrase hinges on this word anti, which typically is rendered instead of. Now here in the ESV we see it's upon, grace upon grace. Instead of is usually how it would be translated. And so it actually makes the reading a bit awkward. 
Uh, we need to we inter- need to interpret this within the context of verse 17, which says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so with this explanatory note in mind, the meaning would most naturally be that we receive grace instead of grace. We receive grace instead of grace, but then, of course, this brings up new questions for us, doesn't it? How are we receiving grace instead of grace? And here's how we, we uh, can understand this. First of all, there is a sense of graciousness in the law of God, the law given to Moses, even as there were blessings and curses in the law. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So even with the law, God is dealing with His people in some fashion. That is, that there's a sense of graciousness even in that. God is dealing with an obstinate and rebellious people. However, instead of the only or merely the law of Moses, God is dealing with His people in a different sort of way. The grace of the law, the promises of God, which had been given previously, now have been found in their substance. The substance of those things, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And so it's not that the law has been replaced or or done away with, but rather that Christ is the whole law come in fulfillment. He's fulfilling the law. God has shown us grace in Jesus Christ. We have grace instead of grace. We have the grace of our Savior Jesus. We have the forgiveness of our sin. We have full payment for sin. The curses of the law have been paid for for you. This was done not because of our own work, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. Grace instead of grace. And you and I, we get to enjoy the fruit of the work of Jesus. Jesus accomplished this on our behalf. We receive it by faith. And so we have the grace of Christ instead of just merely the gracious aspects of the law of Moses. Again, this is a difficult passage, isn't it? But the the main point is that in Christ, we get to enjoy grace, great, tremendous grace and the mercy of God. We enjoy this in Christ because in Christ, God the Father has been made known to us. Verse 18 follows up. You know, the, whole, the whole argument from verse 17 and 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is Christ, has made Him known. And again, here is a further explanation of this grace instead of grace. An allusion again to the Old Testament. Moses, Moses had the privilege of meeting with God. He met with Him face to face in the tent of meeting. Now we also know that Moses did not get to see God. In fact, God told Moses, when Moses asked, he said, well, you know, I would destroy you if, if I let you look upon me. But I'll tell you what, I'll let you look at my back. Moses didn't get to see God, and yet he, he related with God. Moses could experience the afterglow, as it were, of the divine glory. But Moses, even Moses, could not see God and live. 
No one could. No one, says verse 18, has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. God was hidden from men, and no man could gaze upon Him and live. Remember when Isaiah was in the very presence of God? He said, he knew this. And what does he say? He cries out this, Woe is me! Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm undone! No one has seen God, the only God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, the Son of God, who is at the Father's side, has revealed the Father to you and to me. Christ has made God known. That bridge, or that chasm as it were, has been bridged in Christ. Whereas Moses, Moses had to keep the people away. You know, the people wanted to come closer. You better keep them away, I'll destroy them. We need not fear. Moses had to mediate between God and men. Christ is our mediator and our redeemer. And He has opened for us access to the Father. Isn't this glorious? You can know God because of Jesus Christ, who is God and man. We are enabled now to go boldly into the most holy place into the dwelling place of God because the curtain of separation has been torn. Christ, the God-man, has made God the Father known to us. And this, beloved congregation, is good news, isn't it? We can know and interact with God. This good news that, that John the writer writes about in this gospel. This is the good news that God's plan of redemption had come to fruition in Jesus. He is writing so that you might believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that by faith in Him you might have life in His name. This is the hope that we have, isn't it? All which the Old Testament had promised in the coming of the Messiah has been realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John, the Baptist, came to bear witness about that light which had come into the world. And beloved, you and I as Christians, we bear witness too. This message of salvation, beloved congregation, is the message which our community, our nation, this whole world desperately needs, isn't it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But beloved, you have neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ. And so they're incapable of living out the purpose of their life. They grope blindly in the darkness, seeking to fulfill themselves with what the world has to offer. What they need is the light of Christ. They need the redemption found in the Son of God that they might find rest in Him as you have found rest in Him. And by the way, isn't this what you and I need to be reminded of too? Don't we forget these truths? Don't we forget to rest in Christ? 
Do not, do, don't we too find ourselves anxious and burdened by the cares of this world? You and I need to be reminded of the gospel that we can rest in Jesus our Savior. He invites us to, in fact. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest in your Savior, Jesus. For Jesus has made the Father known to you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all of your covenant promises and that all of this comes to fruition in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to rest daily in Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.